And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT.FM. Live in Toronto or possibly one of our very appreciated radio partners internationally, all across Canada specifically, and then uh, our podcast listeners all over the world. Hello. Good week. You're still with us. We made it too. Stefan uh, got back from vacation last week and he's, uh, I think, completely sorted out. It looks primed and ready to go. Uh, oh, except that he would be even better if he had uh, mic volume. What's going on here? There we go. I don't, is that, oh, there we go. I'm slowly hearing myself. You just appeared I'm just now, Stephen. I'm just, I, I, was, uh, I just got back from vacation, actually. I was on vacation until about 12 seconds ago. And yeah. then as, the, as, we, as I slowly came into being, here I am. <laughs> Teleportation, here we are. Yes, exactly. So why don't you take it away? I'm just going to prime uh, quickly one second. We have uh, Evan Savage coming in from the Toronto March for Science in the middle of the program. Sabina Hasseni is also here, joining us a little bit later. Uh, I have a bonus show picked ahead of time for the first time ever. And we're going to be talking about uh, not a silly conversation, but a very, very serious conversation about the non-drug-related benefits of pot legalization here in Canada. This has nothing to do with, uh, although I think that's another important issue, it's off-topic. <laughs> We're not talking about recreational use. We're not talking about pot at all. I want to talk about the impact of pot uh, laws on hemp as a product and the environmental impacts of hemp. But you're going to start right now. Stefan, take it away. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so as, as, you, as you mentioned, we are live from Toronto. Uh, and I feel like that uh, often means that we don't necessarily get a chance to cover some of the re- the rest of this very large country uh, as well as as we would like. Uh, and so sort of shifting my attention uh, or our attention today uh, all the way across the country uh, to the to the west coast uh, and the and specifically the the upcoming British Columbian election um, or Here's the thing. I'm not actually going to say a lot about the election itself. Uh, what I wanted to do instead is sort of take a maybe a, a look back uh, on on what uh, on on the BC Liberals' uh, environmental record, uh, because you know it's one of those things where it's 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 another it's always it's always good to, you know it, it, when a government's been in power for as long as they have been it's always important to sort of look back and be like okay so they've it feels like they've been in power forever um, but let's actually see what what have they done. Um, and, and also, and how well have they, and, and how well have they sort of, you know, navigated the, uh, the ship in different ways and especially on climate, because for climate in BC, it's, it's fascinating because there's just like this, it started, uh, the, the, the real story in climate change. So this is already interesting is that it began, um, with a, with a, with a, with an environmental leader, not Christy Clark, actually, uh, cause it's, cause they've been in power enough that they keep going through different leaders. Um, but, um, but the, it began in 2000, so the story sort of begins in 2007, uh, uh, with P- P- Premier Gordon Campbell, but even actually a little before that, because it's important to note that Gordon Campbell started actually, uh, as sort of, I wouldn't say a denialist, but he was at the very least, uh, you know, along the same vein as a lot of the other Western leaders, uh, especially with Kyoto, uh, he was, he, he was against, he came against the Kyoto Forum. Um, and then in 2000, and, uh, and then 2007, uh, he sort of had a shift, um, in, uh, in opinion about global warming. Um, specifically he sort of, you know, he apparently, apparently he read some enlightening books. Uh, he, he also went to, he also saw some of the China's, uh, polluted cities, uh, in 2006 on a trade visit. And then, uh, and then this is my favorite, uh, this is from the, this is a little, little, little nod, uh, from the, from the Thai. Uh, they also in brackets said, Campbell also noticed that California governor Arnold Sanchez, uh, Arnold Sanchez, Arnold Schwarzenegger rode the issue to a big election victory. Just, just a little, little note in there as well. 
And just really quickly, because it's on topic, because we have Evan coming into the studio in a, in a couple minutes here for the March for Science, just to note how often uh, politicians will say, well, then, you know, I had an opinion, but then my opinion evolved because, you know, I got better informed. Well, fine, you know, and good, good, good for that. We want that. That's a good thing. We want that. Yeah. But at the same point, note how many of them have super strong opinions they're running campaigns on without before they had read anything about this i just i'm just pointing it out yeah. moving on yeah exactly um well it's it, fair uh it, the, part of the ontario climate uh green energy act actually was inspired from a trip to germany so apparently we should just send people other places to like you know just to send them places where they're doing better things and be like look other things are better like a, a government exchange program that might actually <laughs> not be a bad idea yeah like i guess that's sort of what they're doing a lot but um anyways, pulling back to this uh so uh so the government followed up the plane in 2008 uh with specific targets and for a while bc was seen as you know as the climate leader uh, in Canada, uh, but they they brought in a carbon tax, uh, which at the time, which is well before, uh, you know, almost uh, like it was well ahead of its time at that point, um, and 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 they saw immediate benefits. Well, this is this is, again, this is what's great about this is that you, I quote unquote, saw immediate benefits. It means that, that from the two thousand eight to two thousand twelve, they actually made a commitment, which I which is it's it's I find it funny that. Uh, it is shocking that a government makes its climate commitment ever. Like the fact that like it's notable that they said they were going to do something on climate change and successfully actually reduce it by the amount they said they would do. Uh, is, and then I was like, oh, wow, they did something because uh, we just are consistently blowing past every single attempt, every single like I, I would love to know the percentage of climate targets that we've hit because uh, it's minuscule. Um, if it's closest without going over, I just guess zero. <laughs> well, we, we have one, at least. We have, we have one. Uh, the, the BC Liberals hit their 2012 climate mission. That's still close. Yeah. Although, again, what's interesting about this, of course, is – and this is something that I've been harping on for quite some time – is that guess what else happened between 2008 and 2012? A recession. One of the largest recessions in, in – in, 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 like, the largest recession in, in, the, in recent memory. Uh, you, go, you go back to at least 20 years. Um, and so – and so the province's emission count actually fell from like 64.3 megatons uh, to 60.5 megatons. Um, so that's like a 6% cut in four years, which is, is, is pretty good. Um, until you realize that uh, all of Canada's emissions redu- were reduced by 5.3% during the same period uh, without doing anything. Uh, which means that they're that at best uh, their carbon tax or climate plan uh, could be could be, you could give them 0.6 percent. Um, although that's actually gets worse when you realize that they that BC also got an entire megaton in forestry offsets during that time. Uh, so if you get rid of that, then they actually they actually reduced it less than average during their attempt at the climate during their beginning of the climate plan. Now again, that's not as like. They put in a carbon tax. They were moving in the right direction. Uh, 100%, I think that's, you know, and, and, and for a while, they were the sort of, people kept pointing to BC. Like, look, BC's doing pretty well, and they're actually reducing the carbon. Since 2012, 20, uh, 2012 though, uh, the story has been uh, a little different, shall we say. The, there's a, and this is sort of when the comment, and I think, I think there's one, I think there's one quote uh, that uh, or, or one or one funny little, little segment I noticed uh, from from a, from an article this year that sort of sums up I think why perhaps uh, this is different. 
And it's from an article from uh, in the Golden Mail. Uh, one of those like really innocuous articles that whenever they like, come out when when someone approves something. So it's the, the headline of the article is this: BC approves Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion. You know, t- totally totally normal uh, article. And the very first line of this article. Uh, is BC Premier Christy Clark says her government has reached a financial deal with Kinder Morgan worth as much as $1 billion over the next two decades, satisfying her demands that British Columbia get a fair share of the economic benefits from the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, which itself wouldn't necessarily be uh, shocking. You know, we've we've seen we've been it, it's been a year of watching pipelines be approved in many ways, uh, and so that's not that surprising. What what is interesting to me is that if you scroll down, uh, the the quotes from uh, from 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 Christy Clark, I think are 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 really just kind of funny um, and sad uh, because the second quote of the article, the first quote of the article is just one line that just says the project has met five conditions. Um, but the second quote of the article from Christy Clark is this is about protecting our coast. So you open the article with, we're going to make a billion dollars over two decades and halfway down the article, there's the quote, this is about protecting our coast. Mm, is it though? If the thing that was holding this agreement up was how much money you're going to get, how how are we supposed to believe that this is about protecting our coast? I'm pretty sure that that came from the uh, Patriot Act school of Orwellian uh, policy naming, though. <laughs> well, and, and and then it goes to and then it, and then and then it goes on. The next line is that she added she will not promote the pipeline. So this is a pipeline that she's decided she will approve um, and take money from, but refuses to promote it. Ah, well, then allow me to have one more. That comes from the Rex Tillerson school of, I have nothing to do with Exxon. Exxon is a completely separate company. Exxon, 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 Exxon. <laughs> the, um, and, and then again, it, go, it goes on to, uh, and, and then you know, she then goes on to sort of say that Trans Mountain shares the values and priorities of safety, environmental protection, and prosperity for communities that the province's five conditions represent. Okay. Um, there's... I, I, on every time I read stuff like this, I just go back to that one interview we had uh, with the with with the uh, communications lead of the Tsuyeltooth uh, First, uh, First Nations, um, who who the one line when I asked her if there's any way any any way they would approve they, they would ever approve of this pipeline, the response was, "Well, pristine is pristine," and I was just like, "I was it is that I was like, okay, like 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 I, I, it as that one moment to me was like, you're right." There isn't another option. You know, there, there isn't another, you know, uh, the safety and environmental protection doesn't exist if the, if the actual goal is pristine. Can, can I sneak a couple numbers in here? Okay, so I actually happen to have something in front of me. I, w- I wasn't not necessarily going to get into this, but it, it shoehorns directly into what you're saying. Uh, there's another uh, article out today, uh, or uh, sorry, earlier uh, last week actually, about atmospheric CO2 levels accelerating upward, smashing is the adjective they chose. Uh, records. This is on National Observer, and uh, very interesting article. It just goes over global averages, but what it essentially is is outlining is the talk of progress being made on the CO2. Uh, is basically not true and it goes through and we're going to get into a little bit that more later but it's uh global averages are going up parts per million are going up and it talks a little bit about why that is again we're going to get get back into that later but it's like this is all being this is all being done in a context of yeah yeah we're doing all this great stuff well no no you're not (laughs) and uh and another thing and and again we'll come back to it but the other thing too is that like 
uh, don't overemphasize on national for one thing. First of all, the national story is is a joke and is largely marketing anyway. It's it's sort of it's all the wallpaper without any of the walls. Uh, but it's also we have to take things within the context of what's happening globally. And if we're doing a little bit better than you know we were, uh, but overall things are still accelerating to get bad, uh, to get much much worse. Well, then we, that's the only benchmark. There, there's no god at the end of the day who's going to go. Well, you know, Canada did pretty good, so we're going to exclude Canada from the impacts. That's not how this. <laughs> works yeah um yeah and, and so and so that's and so to, to sort of to jump back in 2012 um what the really the story's been since uh since we it has been this sort of double-sided uh a lot of good words towards uh towards caring about the environment uh and stuff like that uh while approving uh, you know, major infrastructure after major infrastructure, after major infrastructure. I mean, we're talking about the, uh, there's a massive LNG pipeline going on, going in there. Uh, there's of course just approved Kinder Morgan, um, and uh, and that's not to mention the Site C Dam. Like this is like they've they're just been overwhelming uh, infrastructure or, like being built that is that is going to only add to the carbon that we're doing that we're creating. Um, and and so in the, so like. Even with this "quote unquote" carbon plan, we've actually seen an increase in carbon again in BC. You know, it's it, sure. It, like, I'm sure you could. This is one of those things where it's like the Harper era government could say, "Well, as a share of GDP, that it's going down." But that's actually not what matters. In the same way that it doesn't matter if you know if Canada was slightly better than the rest of the world, it also doesn't matter if we made slightly more money while destroying the planet. That's not a. There's, there's you know, there's no, there's no. There's no board, uh, so there's no like financial board that all of Earth has to respond to every quarter and be like, but we're making more money in comparison. Yeah, and w- one of the other articles I flagged this week, we we may also get into this later. I'm not sure, but uh, just because again, because it quickly, perfectly shoehorns into what you were saying, was there was another article in the National Observer about uh, all sorts of investments that are being done in the uh, the oil sands and look, oh look, thirty percent water reduction or this or that. Again, we'll get into the numbers later, but but it's like. Yeah. So like if that's all you're looking at, it's like, oh, wow, we're doing great. It's like, yes, but if the end result is not what we need, if if the overall caps are going up by 40 some odd percent, it doesn't matter how efficient each drop of oil is. We only care about total numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sabina, go ahead. And usually they manipulate the numbers to make them seem a lot better. So they'll say, oh, it's 30% more efficient than before. Well, if before it was extremely inefficient, (laughs) then 30% more efficient than before is still going to be just as bad. Yeah. Or, or, you know, the murder rate has gone down by 28%. How bad was it before? Yeah. And tw- and 28% still leaves, you know, 62%. Yeah. Um, but the um, fact check is 72%. Yeah. Damn, uh, I was just doing that in my head. Damn it. Um, but but, but it, I, that, like, that whole thing reminds me really of, of the Harper era uh, of, of showing the graphs all starting in 2007 going downwards towards and is still increasing carbon. Uh, just like every graph would always start at that exact moment. Um, but to, to, to sort of sum up, I think the there was a chance for BC to, to prove that they that they cared, um, and this chance was was last year uh, in. And when I say BC, I mean the BC Liberals. I actually think a majority of people who live in BC care. Um, uh, but last uh, last August, they released their uh, their new climate plan, and I remember we covered this then, uh, and it was just. That was their chance. That was their chance to prove that they took this seriously and their chance to prove that they actually wanted to be leaders. Uh, and, and, they, and they dropped the ball. 
you know, they, they decided they weren't going to increase the carbon tax, which again, it, uh, the, the, the time for, uh, the time for being happy you have a carbon tax is over. Uh, like, yes, we still need a price on carbon everywhere because that, but that price has to be steadily increasing because a $30 price on carbon is not close to enough. Uh, averages estimate around we need about 200. Um, which is dramatically more. So, so the idea of not, not increasing it, um, and and then with a, with a, and while also it was relying a lot heavily on forestry and agriculture for reductions, is is untenable. You know, it, it, there wasn't any real hope. Uh, and and so I think, generally speaking, uh, you know, the the BC Liberals uh, have this sort of long weird history, uh, and it it has some great got some bright points, uh, but it's definitely trending in the wrong direction. Yeah. And also note that several of their advisors are ex Harper appointees. So there's there's a there's a, sw- a revolving door there that should be noted. Uh, we're going to go to our music break now uh, and come back and talk to uh, Evan Savage, who's with the March for Science. Uh, spend a few minutes with that. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT. Uh, but first, Kai is going to tell us about our music break. All right. Today we have a Saskatchewan artist, Andy Schaff. Um, his album, The Party, it's a fantastic album. It's all one United storyline. So we're going to be listening to Early to the Party. And we are back. You're listening to the Green Majority here in CIT 89.5 FM, live or on our podcast, uh, greenmajority.ca. You can check that out as well, where we uh, now have uh, a slightly more organized bonus show that is being posted separately. Uh, let us know what you think. It's coming out on Mondays. Give people a little chance to uh, have a breather on their weekend. So check that out. Greenmajority.ca. Also, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and now into the United States and beyond as well. Uh, with that... We have Evan Savage joining us now live in the studio, uh, wearing a looking uh, like a brand new March for Science Toronto uh, shirt. Uh, I love the imagery there. Uh, I also just uh, just uh, I haven't met Evan until about uh, half an hour ago. Uh, I have a Carl Sagan tattoo, just you know, so we're on the same team. Uh, uh, Hold on a second now. I'm uh, missing mic volume. Let me try this here. I now give you the power to speak. Go ahead. (laughs) That's fantastic. Oh, wonderful. We can hear you. Welcome to the Green Majority, Evan. It's great to be here. All right. So uh, first of all, we've spoken to so I've spoken to a number of folks involved with a variety of uh, standing up for uh, science. Uh, This was obviously much more in our news cycle uh, when we had Harper. Um, And I think that's where I would like to start, of course, because under Harper, we had very, 
I would say clear and open and and like what no cloak and dagger, just straight out sort of like, yeah, we're muzzling scientists. What are you going to do about it? Um, and since then, since we've had Trudeau, I mean, uh, at no point have we ever let up on Trudeau on this program. There's several hours of tape of me yelling at him to uh, to put my bona fides there. But the issue of muzzled scientists sort of dropped from the radar. So I think many listeners would be a little bit of surprised that there's still sort of a passionate fight for science. Um, I think I could make somewhat of a case here, but this is your march. Please make the case. Why are we still marching for science? Sure. So as you mentioned, under Harper, yes, there was this sort of pure, bald antagonism towards science. And it manifested in a whole bunch of ways. You saw the muzzling of scientists. You saw cuts to fundamental research, most particularly in environmental research in conservation research, far Arctic research, uh, ozone monitoring research, uh, you saw a shifting of priorities in terms of the funding that was left into more, um, more industry partnerships, more immediately commercially viable research as opposed to the fundamental research on which we all depend. So yes, it was it manifested in a whole bunch of ways. It was really troubling for science. I think we see a lot of echoes of that in what the Trump administration is doing as regards the EPA, the NOAA, uh, just the general stance towards the sciences. And that is troubling in and of itself. Uh, but also, yes, as you mentioned, Trudeau does, you know, there are Although he has made some encouraging statements, we can't let him off the hook. We just saw the release of the Naylor report. It, it said that we should be putting drastically more resources into basic research to the tune of $1.3 billion every year. Now, they publicly released the report too late for this year's budget. So we're going to have to wait at least a year for that to come into effect. And just take a minute and just remind people what, what the report's about. What, what is that report? So it's, it's a report from the Fundamental Science Review talking about how, at the core of it, it's talking about how we as a nation have lost our fundamental competitiveness in science and basic research and making recommendations on how we can remedy that. And they talk about it as the thing is it goes back before Harper. They talk about it going on over a span of about 15 years. And so they're really just sort of trying to highlight ways in which we can restore that. And one of the things, I mean, I've I've been I've, I've occasionally self-labeled myself an extremist on the, <laughs> on this issue because, I mean, for me, there there's a bunch of areas where. Like so, one of the one of the lines that I love that comes from late night talk shows, uh, comedy shows, is that uh, idea of the uh, you know you have your own you have, you have a right to your own opinions, but not your own facts, right? And so the idea that like there are certain issues where we just shouldn't tolerate things that are just silly right so like we don't we don't let people have a serious discussion in the scientific field about whether or not the earth is still flat despite the fact that they're flat earther societies today <laughs> oh don't remind right? me and so i mean there are certain issues where like you know so you know i've proposed a bunch of ideas around having like an independent you know very powerful independent science body that reports to you know that that uses the methodology of uh academia to uh preserve sort of to sort of keep it from being sort of like a overly powerful but like a review board basically saying like these policies are in direct contradiction to science come up with something else you know and you can have a discussion about how that would work and how much power that body would actually have but it's meant to address this fundamental problem that just constantly and all over the place we have people who are either intentionally ignorant or very badly informed making extremely dangerous decisions where it's not like we don't have any ideas the science is clear and yet this is a a ongoing issue in pretty much every nation on earth 
Right. And we actually had a panel discussion on the March for Science on Tuesday at the Canadian Science Policy Center. And Meredith, who was moderating that, brought up a really excellent point, which is that we need more, we need more scientists in politics. We need more people literate in science in politics. If you look at the website of the House Committee, I think it's on space, Science, Space and Technology in the U.S., it's an embarrassment. It's a hotbed of climate change denialism and other such pseudoscientific stuff. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things, I mean, you know, when we've gone over this this idea of uh, before about uh, scientists, well, they have to learn how to be better PR people, right? Um, because, you know, the, 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 the issue is that uh, this information is not being disseminated to the public uh, well, and that the science, uh, science community has a way of speaking, which is uh, to be very sort of hedge their bets and to be very, very cautious. Uh, just by nature, by training, uh, and that this doesn't translate well into the world of hyperbole when you sort of transfer into politics. And so legitimate science and, and scientists who are being very serious about their work can often be misused uh, by people who are, have a little bit of a, an, an incentive to be flexible with the truth or to you know misinterpret things. Uh, but really, I mean, for me, it comes down to, okay, well, we can ask scientists to be superhumans. We can ask them to be experts in their fields and public PR masters and politicians, or the rest of us can just learn some science. Like, to me, it's like, okay, how much can we possibly ask of our limited resources of scientists? Don't we want them doing science? Right. And actually, that's, that brings up an excellent point. You know, we talked about what are our sort of major platforms for the March for Science. And this, this in and of itself is an interesting topic. There was an article that came out where the reporter had sort of called through the various satellite march websites, come up with a list of 27 different reasons. It's an enormously heterogeneous group of people marching under this banner. But aside from speaking out against the muzzling of scientists, aside from advocating for evidence-based policymaking, one thing that is really important to us uh, in the March for Science Toronto is improving the quality and inclusivity of STEM education. If we're not reaching everyone, if we're not bringing everyone that could be a scientist into that fold, if we're not inspiring people to become scientists or even just to believe that science has valuable things to teach us, then... That is troubling. That is a shortcoming we have to correct. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, climate denying, anti-science, uh, sort of ignorant person who's ever made a trolley comment on the internet, uh, you know, is using an iPhone or a Galaxy or whatever. And, <laughs> you know, to be like, oh, stupid scientist, what do they know? Hit send on my, you know, satellite communicating pocket computer. This is actually one of the... There's a, a, an informal communication channel over Slack between a bunch of the Satellite March organizers. And so we've shared a whole bunch of chants. One of my favorites is you just walk down the street and you point to things and you say, what made this lamppost? What made this cell phone? What made this structure not fall over in a light wind? Science. That's science. Yeah. That's what it does for us, among many, many, many other things. Yeah. So, I mean, so uh, you talked about, um, we sort of, uh, you hinted there a little bit at, at a much larger thing. So why don't we take a, a pause here on, on, on my soapboxing and, uh, and you're assisting <laughs> with my soapboxing. Uh, you mentioned that the, you mentioned a few things there that I want to sort of put a light on. So you said there's a, a march happening in Toronto. You said there's a, a satellite march is happening worldwide. Just discuss what's actually going on and, and what is the actual event? How, how global is this, et cetera? All right. So in our particular case, we're meeting at City Hall. We're going to be marching to the provincial legislature and then giving a series of speeches on various topics related to our platform. But this is happening in the context of an international movement with 500, over 500 satellite marches worldwide on every inhabited continent. I think only Antarctica is not really covered in, in the list of continents doing this. It's really met with an overwhelming response. 
And I think that speaks to the global nature of science, the increasingly global nature of science. One thing that we saw in particular under the Harper administration was a, this is an example we keep bringing up in a lot of our messaging, cuts to an ozone monitoring network for which we host a database on behalf of the UN in Montreal. And these deep cuts would have made it infeasible to continue to operate this database. Now we bring up this example, both because it's, an example of how national policy affects the international context, and also because those cuts were averted after sustained pressure from the national and international scientific communities. So we've seen that national science and international science are intertwined. They're inseparable. And we've seen that when this community speaks up, it can make a difference. So I think that's part of a deep part of the global context, the March for Science. Do you think, I mean, and you've talked about there, there being a lot of support for this, but of course this doesn't, and for reasons we, don't, we won't go into now because that's a whole other conversation, but it, it often, and if not almost always, doesn't translate into public policy, right? So you have a, a number of people concerned about climate change. We get people talking about climate change, but where the, the scientists actually have things to say, which is, you know, what do we need to do and when do we need to do it by, those, the, those details, the, de- the very details that inspire the conversation in the in the first place are never included in the conversation. My question to you is, and I and I'm asking you, uh, I'll, I'll buy you some breathing room here, and I'll ex- <laughs> make sure that I'm explicitly saying that I'm asking you, not you know, as an uh, organizer or, or as from the march, but just you personally. Do you, how do you feel that balance lies between uh, sort of insidiousness, which is the the sense of you know companies doing things that benefit themselves, uh, versus just a general ignorance of the reality of, of either the science itself or the or the or the uh, veracity of the data itself. Well, you you touched on it before when you talked about you know, science scientists traffic not in certainties, not in absolutes, but in probabilities, in the weight of evidence, in the process of peer review. That's a fundamentally difficult thing for people to grasp, especially if they don't have training in data literacy, scientific understanding, it, and especially. If you're talking about climate change, you're talking about a thing with global effects. A thing with global effects, the primary indicators of which are things that for many people are far off, not in their everyday experience. The melting of ice in the Arctic and Antarctic. The change in oceanic currents. These are not things that your average average person isn't sitting in the middle of the Pacific measuring the ocean current with a paddle. They're sitting at home, and for them, maybe a rainstorm comes every now and then. That seems unusual for the season, but then the next winter is colder, and they're like, oh, this isn't a real thing. So I think there is – I would say it's almost both. There's a level of ignorance about these complex issues that really we're going to have to – there's going to need to be a coordinated effort in – education, not just on this particular issue, but on the skills of critical thinking, on the skills of data analysis that you need to even understand the issue. And then there's also, I think, that fundamental complexity is seized upon by people who see an opportunity to to muddy the waters, to muddy the issue and say, oh, look, I can cast doubt upon this because this is difficult for people to grasp. One of the other aspects that I found very interesting, uh, I've watched, uh, I, I've already said I have a Carl Sagan tattoo. Everyone, anyone who listens to this show, this show knows that he's my hero. I, I, I have a biannual playing of a clip from Cosmos, like a super fan. People who listen to this program know that. Uh, his protege, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, I've also listened to quite a bit of him. And one of the things that Neil deGrasse Tyson has talked about quite a bit uh, 
and he's spoken about this. He's been asked a lot about politics because, uh, like Carl, he's been very involved with the pol- political side of it, right? So he's spoken before Congress and and has access to all these uh, uh, you know administrators in in the United States and bureaucrats that have power. And he's been asked about this repeatedly. And what he's often said was that he's actually had quite a bit of success. Uh, and the reason for this is because he's not going in sort of you know. Uh, he doesn't go in with an adversarial tone. He goes in with understanding that this is that this is like chemistry as far as is like far as his approach to it is these people are seeking financial returns. This is the attitude in Washington right now. What they want to know is financial returns. So he just goes in and he leaves out all of his science advocacy and says, this is how much you're going to make if you invest in these fields. This is how much you're going to lose if you don't invest in these fields. And he to his uh, to his credit, and also I sort of had to take his word for it, but he he claims he's been very very successful with this approach. What are your feelings on sort of? I mean, as a science enthusiast, I don't like that part. I love just science for the sake of science. But is this how we have to do it? Is this something that we could be doing more? Could we do it better? What is it? What's the tactic on how to get people in power interested in this stuff? And you know, I share a lot of your misgivings about the purely economic approach to it. Uh, on the other hand, I think. That does speak to, you know, there's a lot of insecurity about the availability of jobs, about the the economic future of our societies that we can't completely ignore either. Let's, I mean, going back to the Naylor report, I mentioned they they wanted $1.3 billion annually in additional funding. Sounds like a lot. Sounds like a huge number. That's $40 for every Canadian. So for the price of a dozen coffees each, we could have we could restore Canadian competitiveness in basic research. Based on the age of our audience, let me translate that into that's half a night out. (laughs) so exactly exactly and you look at nasa's budget these are by all rights line items in the vast expenditures of a government especially one such as the u.s that covers 300 million people and they return their economic inputs many times over neil degrasse tyson is right the investment you make in science from a purely economic perspective if you ignore all of the value, the intrinsic value of furthering human knowledge, exploring space, expanding our understanding of this universe, all those wonderful things, if you ignore all of that for a second, it's still a really fantastic investment, and it's foolish not to make it. Uh, I wish that, I mean, I think one of the things that these science communicators have always done, Carl Sagan, Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the most amazing things that they do is they instill a sense of basic wonder in science. So when they're not talking to Washington, when they're not talking to Washington, when they're talking to the rest of us, they instill that wonder. And that wonder does carry through. We were in a place 60 or 70 years ago in the US where many kids grew up dreaming of being astronauts. We can get there again, not just with astronauts, but every, everything. People can dream of being scientists when you instill that basic wonder. So I think both are needed. I think both are needed. Perhaps they're for different audiences. And if you instill that wonder in the public, the social pressure, the political pressure that generates eventually bubbles up and maybe hits that sort of bottom line consciousness in Washington. Yeah. And I know uh, like um, uh, Bill Nye, for instance, has been doing quite a lot more TV and is uh, these days and whatnot. And, and there are several scientists that get, you know, rap is like, oh, those arrogant jerks. And, you know, Dawkins is in that category. I actually think Dawkins is kind of a jerk, but, you know, <laughs> that, but no, that has nothing to do with his work. He's just he is a bit of an ass. But uh, there the the idea there, too, is as well as that like this 
I just want to sort of put it out there as well for people who are like, well, I don't, I don't like those scientists. They're all really super arrogant. If you had to deal day in, day out constantly with people who are self-righteously proud of their ignorance, you'd be pretty annoyed too. And I just want to like cut them some slack. <laughs> but this is a really important conversation. Um, and it's one that I hope uh, people think about. And it's one that's like, it's, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's autom- it's like automatically exciting. But I think for a lot of people, it's hard to make it sexy. And so um, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I'll, I'll double down on your thing that, you know, we need to be able to talk about it in dollar and cents terms. I don't think that's the only terms we should talk about it in. Um, but I think having that information at the ready and maybe leading with that and then getting to your, by the way, this is, you know, actually really cool, uh, is as some sort of icing on the cake is, is maybe the way to go. We're out of time, Evan, but I want to give you the last uh, minute of this section to let people know for our Toronto listeners, uh, unfortunately, set, uh, uh, maybe you can link to the website where people in other cities can find, because I know you don't have the whole list uh, at your fingertips, mm-hmm. but if you want to just let people know where they can look up an event in their city and then give the information about Toronto's March and the date, of course, for our time-shifted audiences uh, so they don't show up on the wrong day, that would be great. Of course. So the March for Science is happening in 500 cities worldwide, April 22nd, that's tomorrow. I'm trying not to remind myself of that fact, but it is tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. you got work to do. <laughs> right. And uh, in Toronto, we're going to be starting at 11 a.m. at Nathan Phillips Square. We'll have a quick sort of gathering. Then we'll march from there to Queen's Park, where we'll have a fantastic lineup of speakers speaking across all, all spectrum of our, of our platform. Uh, as far as the broader satellite march, marches, if you search for March, of science, march for Science... You, they actually have a list of satellite marches on their site, and there's a map that goes along with that, so you can easily find your city's march there. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Evan Savage from the March for Science Toronto chapter. Uh, we'll speak to you again, I'm sure. All right. Thank you. All right. So uh, before we get to our last section, uh, Sabina is going to uh, come back with some more science. It's a very science-heavy show today, and we love it. Uh, we're going to hear from Megan very quickly about what our next music break is going to be. <laughs> So for our next music break, we're going to be listening to an Alberta artist. This is Ray Spoon with Love is a Hunter. You won't see it until it's too late Rolling from you in some unnamed way Love is a hunter Love is a hunter Love is a hunter and it's coming for you Hunt 
And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We have, uh, oh, almost a full section left. Stefan, we've been really awesome about time today. Yeah, man. It's like, it's, it's, someone should, we should get like trophies or something. We'll high five later. In any way close to being on time. (laughs) time. All right. So we're in the home stretch here. You're listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM Live. I'm your host, Aaron Kaster, in studio with Sabina Hasseni and Stefan Hostetter. We just heard from uh, Evan Savage, who's with the Toronto March for Science. You can find all the information about that and any news articles we mention on our website at greenmajority.ca, as long with the bonus show, which we'll be recording after this, but will be posted in a couple of days. Uh, This uh, week, we're going to talk about the environmental benefits of hemp that might come about as a consequence of the change in pot laws, uh, not talking so much about the drug aspect, but uh, about the aspect of prohibition on the drug uh, has had on the environmental benefits of the non-drug-oriented plant. That is our topic this week. So lots and lots of science all the way through, but for more science, here's Sabina. Uh, Thank you. So as you already mentioned, this is a very science-heavy show, and this section right now will focus on some of the numbers that have um, shown up in the past week on the atmospheric CO2 levels and kind of Canada's role in that, in, that global, in that global fight or not fight. So a recent article published on the National Observer titled Atmospheric CO2 Levels Accelerate Upward Smashing Records, which you alluded to earlier, Darren, highlights three key points about the state of carbon dioxide emissions in our atmosphere globally and what Canada's role in that is. So the first point was that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continues to accelerate upwards despite global efforts, which we've mentioned over and over and over again. And the last two years have had an unprecedented increases. And lastly, Canadian CO2 extraction is playing an oversized role. So this is the story told by the newest CO2 data released by the United United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, NOAA. And in 2016, the annual increases of CO2 were three parts per million, which is unprecedented and is smashing records previously not previously seen. The scientists also pointed out that in 2016 was a a record of fifth consecutive year that carbon dioxide rose by two parts per million or greater. So what does this mean? Why is this happening? And uh, even though we see that there's a lot of global movement with the COPs and UNFCC, why... Why is fossil fuel CO2 accelerating? So the article outlines four different reasons why this could be happening. And the first one is the carbon dioxide could be increasing, mostly because of the numbers numbers that nations report. They could be completely wrong. They rely... Uh, these numbers rely on nations to accurately report their fossil fuel f- fossil fuel use, which they do not all do, especially when it comes to burning their own coal supplies. Uh, secondly, humans might be increasing CO2 emissions from other sectors. So roughly a quarter of carbon dioxide released by humans comes from non-energy sources. And these can be land use changes, agriculture, deforestation, fugitive emissions, industrial processes, things that we haven't previously talked about as much as as just fossil fuel burning, as well as climate change could be increasing CO2 emissions itself. We've spoken about this over and over again. So increases in wildfires, droughts, melting permafrost, as well as changing to plankton and oceans, all cause, all cause 
um, CO2 emissions to to increase. And lastly, the oceans and the biosphere do not might not be absorbing as much CO2 as we've previously seen because these sinks are completely full. And if if they are observing, then it's going to increase ocean acidification completely change the way the the ecology or the 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 water uh, sorry the underwater ecology can i say that i We're feel gonna, like i'm blanking out right yeah, now yeah, underwater i think underwater ecology the, the, the biosphere that's it right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that that's completely going to change with the um, ph levels rising and all of the all of the um, fish and animals living underwater will have to adapt if they can. So adding adding all of this up, despite global efforts and the climate negotiations, accords and protocols, carbon dioxide is now increasing. This was very interesting. 60% faster than when the first United Nations Conference of the Party met. So what have they been doing? <laughs> really, this is for me what my my main question is and interesting interestingly enough for the plan b so in order for us to be below two degrees celsius which i really don't think is going to happen but let's try to be positive and not beat about this the international energy agency and the international renewable energy agency produced a joint report which stated that it, limiting the global mean temperatures rise to below two degrees with a probability of 66% would require an energy transition of exceptional scope, depth, and speed. First of all, none that we have. <laughs> Energy-related CO2 emissions would need to peak before 2020 and fall more than 70% from today's levels by 2050. So remember that 30% efficiency that we were talking about on some small level of oil uh, <laughs> Uptake. I believe well, that we it need was, a seventy percent reduction. Just going from memory, I believe that was thirty uh, percent in water uh, in uh, tailings pond size uh, due to water reduction. It sounds great. Oh, wow. it, like it really does. Like if that's all you're reading, it sounds really, uh, really, really good. Uh, but again, this is and this is sort of what you were trying to highlight, Sabina, is that you know. Our like efficiency in this case is absolutely irrelevant. We have absolute limits, right? If you're out of money and you spent $600 less than last week, it's irrelevant. You're out of money, right? So like you've put that money on credit. If you don't have a way to make it back, you're, you're in trouble. The, well, I spent half as much as I did last month. It doesn't matter at all. It means nothing. Exactly. And, and this statement basically just says that an ambitious set of policy measures, including rapid phase out of fossil fuel subsidies, CO2 prices, extensive energy market reforms, and stringent low carbon and energy efficiency mandates are needed to achieve this transition, all of which Canada doesn't have and is kind of going the complete opposite of that. And actually, David Suzuki is criticizing the Trudeau government basically on that, saying that oil is the dirtiest energy that we've got. And there's no such thing as world-class ability to clean up an oil spill. And this is, of course, at odds with the Trudeau's government's mantra that the environment and the economy go together and that a balance can be struck between getting Canadian oil to tidal water and cutting down on heat-trapping carbon pollution. So I think, I think that's basically – so this was for an, from another article on, on the National Observer. And, and I think this is kind of what we've been alluding to. You can't really say we're going to increase fossil – or we're going to increase – we're going to approve pipelines, increase fossil fuel burning, but then add a $30 tax on carbon, which makes absolutely no difference if you're just increasing that. Because if there's a willingness to pay that carbon tax, that's not actually going to change any any 
anything. Yeah, and there's a, an article actually just, just released a report just released from uh, the Pembina Institute, um, which which sort of is talking about the Canadian what what the Canadians uh, what the trends are in Canadian GHG emissions, and it kind of it, it's it's one of those things you look at and you're like that's not surprising, um, but also is is kind of scary because uh, you know since it was interesting it, since 2000. Um, we've actually Canada actually has done a quite a good job, or a relatively good job, of of reducing the carbon uh, of electricity. So electricity generation actually has 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 decreased. But during that same time, the trend lines for oil and gas and transportation have have gone the exact opposite direction. Uh, you know, they've both they've both increased by you know about as much as as, as electricity has decreased. And and then look at where the trend lines are even going further, where they expect it, where the Pembina Institute is looking at it even further. Um, you know, transportation, they are a little, they, they feel a little decent about how it might slowly curb off a little bit and go down a bit. Um, but oil and gas is still going up. Uh, and, you know, at some point, at some point, it has, to, we, we have to realize that, like, you, you, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we're doing if we're going to keep building new pipelines and keep increasing our oil exporting. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that in all of the measures for carbon dioxide or fossil fuels, national measures, it's, these are all scope three. So you would not say, oh, this is how much this is done because that's transportation that's out of scope, that's out of range. We're not going to measure that. But then that shows up in the atmospheric, global atmospheric carbon dioxide, which, as I stated earlier and, and this article stated, is it's three parts per million in the past two years. It's increased, which means that whatever we've been doing and whatever policies that we've had, okay, it's it's great that we do that that Canada has reduced its energy um, energy carbon dioxide emissions. However, at the end of the day, the total and the global amount of carbon dioxide is increasing, and that's what we have to focus on. In in my opinion, because it doesn't really matter what Canada does. Canada's part of a larger global. Well, we've we've so successfully compartmentalized each country into its own thing, and yet somehow managed to. Basically, out you know, basically not even count the emissions that like we've we the whole world should be counting their emissions. If we added up all the world's emissions, we should figure this out. But it just doesn't you know we've every country's managed to sort of like push some some carbon out of its scope, and, and so and so, yeah yeah so you get these numbers where you're like that doesn't make a lot of sense given the other numbers we have, but something's happening because we can tell it's happening. Exactly. Well, and so it was one other thing that we came back to, and, I, and I've actually um, I, I've got into more than one argument with like professionals in this. So not like random people on Facebook. Uh, arguments on LinkedIn with like people who are professionals in this field about this topic. But I mean, my, the case for electrifying everything is that. Um, so cars, every, everything, everything, you'd be like, well, energy. And it's like the critic, the criticism is like, well, then, you know, your electricity is only so clean as your generation. No, no, that's not a bug. That's a feature because look at this. Citizens buy stuff constantly. They're constantly replacing things, right? So they're buying a new car. They're buying a new house. They're buying a new this. They're buying a new that. So consumers are spending money on things, right? So what you do is you pass policy to make it so that you encourage or if not force electrification of anything, then the government doesn't have to spend money on part of the problem because consumers are going to buy something. Now they're just buying product B instead of product A. Yes, there might be a price difference. 
but that's a that's in the math, right? But the point is that people are buying money. You're just shifting what they're buying. So now everything de- demands electricity, right? Now the government can spend its limited resources on one thing and have maximum impact, which is that instead of needing 500 million different policies, you need one policy. Green the energy grid. You have one target for a government. Clean our energy grid to the cleanest possible. We're going to invest money to have this rollout. We're going to invest in what makes sense now. We're going to invest in research for what makes sense later. But you now have one goal that is now the singular focus of that government, which is how do we reduce electricity costs and its carbon at the same time? That's a complex problem, but it's a single problem that you can put all of your energy into. And now you've just made the most drastic impacts you possibly could. Not burning a bunch of fossil fuel, trying to figure out how to clean up the process of the fossil fuel, but then still building some cars that now burn fossil fuel. It doesn't work. It doesn't work and it will take too, even if it did work, it would take too long. We need to electrify everything and have a single focus. Our our Pearl Harbor example that uh, David Suzuki used, that's, but the first thing you need to do is focus people's attention so that we have a thing we can fight on. This is how we fight by cleaning up our electricity grid and we can make it cheaper too. It's possible. In fact, it's very, very easy if you don't have people lobbying the other way, but it only does anything if you, if it has maximum impact and you, the way you maximize impact is by electrifying everything. Yeah. And, and I completely, I, I would completely agree with that. And all of the other things that are happening, for example, carbon tax, cap and trade, all of the resources put towards that, that would be not an issue because if you electrified, then they, that would in, internally create a carbon tax or a carbon price, I would say. There was, there was an article, um, I can't rem- remember exactly for, for which, which policy that was enacted in Ontario, but I think it actually created an internal par- uh, price on carbon of $100. I think it was uh, phasing out coal in Ontario. Right, right, and- yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting, especially given that we have so much control over hydro, right? At least, at least sorry, hydro I use as a, as a slang for energy in Ontario. Um, but like, just because we have so much hydroelectricity. Um, but uh, that sort of idea of... Um, providing a little more a, a one-stop shop for you know like it, you're still going to need a price on carbon uh, like to you 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 can't you can't not have price on carbon externally to sort of push these things down um especially because if part of the goal is to incentivize the existence of electric vehicles which is a major part of electrifi- electrifying things the one major way to do that is actually putting a price on carbon um because it w- or or you actually just you know you just subsidize it but People are very much against subsidies unless they're for you know making your airplane flight cheaper by subsidizing the fossil fuels on it, which funnily enough is where most of the fossil fuel subsidies go is the airplanes. Um, so yeah, but they're only used to fly uh, environmental activists around to give talk, Stefan. So. Right, that's the, actually the only people who fly. Yeah, that's the yeah. only people who fly. It's, that's why Al Gore is uh, is really he's he's the one causing all the climate change. Yeah, United would have been out of business years ago if those damn <laughs> environmentalists stopped flying everywhere. <laughs> now that's a that's a, that's a that's a stretch I can get behind. Uh, any last thoughts, Sabina? No, I, I wanted to be a devil's advocate for the section that we had a little bit earlier talking about science and and kind of the role of scientists. And I kind of agree with what you guys are saying, but I really – so in there was – there was an article exactly. So Suzuki said that we need more information and and this access to better information is going to make people's decisions change. I feel like we've been trying to do that for so long, for years and years and years. And there's been no results. People are still going to choose the alternate facts if they do, it, um, if they want to. So what 
is really the roles of the role of scientists or how should we educate the public should we just keep telling them about the facts the three parts per million or should we i don't know engage them in some way make a movie make a dumb joke about it make better policies and for me this this is i feel like we're failing <laughs> i feel like we're failing trying to educate the public on the right facts and how do we kind of become the kim kardashian of climate change <laughs> no you didn't do that you have a minute left don't do that um, i just i have to stop you right there Stephen, you get the last minute all right um well, I, I feel like the that's the question of what we're doing i think i i had this conversation recently actually about how about how much uh what i think our biggest difficulty actually might be um is um Okay, so uh, what the biggest difficulty is that when we don't have the ability to continue education with people in, in, in as they move forward, like when we don't have the ability to educate people uh, after they leave high school, um, that's that's I think that's I think where we have to figure out. We have to figure out what we can do to get uh, new information to people uh, even after 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 they might be they might be done. You know, like. People finish high school uh, or finish university or finish whatever the last thing they finished was and then don't necessarily have to take – to learn anything else. Um, and I think I think perhaps that's something that we as a society has to look at of, of what do we do to keep informed of new information because if you're 20 years out of, 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 of university or high school, you're – like we've learned so much in 20 years um, and you're not, if you're not following up on it, we got to figure that out I think. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you very much uh, to Stefan, Evan, and Sabina. Uh, join us in the bonus show uh, right afterwards. Uh, we posted shortly. Other than that, have a good green week, folks. Thanks for listening and take care.